And now hear God's holy word from Revelation chapter 14, continuing our study in the book of Revelation. This is God's holy word. Then I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing on their harps. They sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits to God and to the lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we ask you that as we work through this book that you have communicated in the language of symbol, that we would be given your Holy Spirit, that we might interpret it correctly. And so deliver me from all error, deliver us all from distraction today, and guide us by your spirit into truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I find the older that I get, the longer it takes me to catch up to new fads. So this may be already out of, out of fashion, but it seems that sea shanties, of all things, are making a comeback and making videos of yourself, singing them and posting them online is the, is the new fad. Did anyone have the reemergence of sea shanties uh, on, their, on, their, on their list of things that were happening in 2021? Did anybody predict that? Did anybody foresee that? These sea shanties or sea chanties, it's, these are chants, they originated in the early part of the 19th century. These were songs that were sung by working men on ships and they have specific rhythms that helped with different tasks like raising the sail, like, like uh, pulling up the anchor or pumping water out of the ship. Their chant-like rhythms is one of the reasons that they're so popular. They're fun to sing, they're easy to sing, they're easy to harmonize, and therefore it's not difficult to get several people together and sing them together in parts and they sound real good and they're fun. Uh, you record yourself singing your part and your friends sing their parts and, and it sounds real, real neat. But it's a reminder of a time where men sang together in public. I think women typically sing around the house, they sing to their children, uh, they, they sing as they go about their daily duties, but men in times past sang together and not just for performance. Men sang at work, they sang in the fields, not, not just on chain gangs or, or when they marched in the military, but also men used to sing in corporate environments. If, if you want a fun little journey, uh, Google the IBM songbook from 1937. There's an IBM hymnal if, if you check it out, I'm not making this up. You look at me like I'm making it. I'm not making it up. It's a hymnal with 54 pages of songs about how great it is to work for IBM and how revved up you are to go sell business machines. Um, and people sang in, in corporate environments. People sang at political rallies and parties and football games and community gatherings. We've mostly replaced all this singing with professionally recorded music everywhere you go. And people don't sing as much until you come to church, and even in then, it's, it's not a lot, and in most churches, you can kind of sit out the singing, you can leave it to the professionals on the stage if you like. 
But that's not how it is here, is it? We, not here. Singing is central to what we do in this congregation. It's central to what we do when we come together. Singing is not something we do at the beginning just to get you ready for the sermon. We sing throughout the service. We say some things together, but if we can sing it, that's way better than saying it. So we don't say the Lord's Prayer, we sing it together. We don't read the Psalms back and forth to each other, we sing them. Singing is elevated speech. Singing is glorified speech. So song is woven through our worship. At every step of the way, you're called to participate in singing and join your voices together with the whole congregation of people, as well as with the angels who are always singing around the throne of God. We pray in the Lord's Prayer and we sing together in the Lord's Prayer that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when you see how worship runs in heaven, there's all of this music. They're singing. When the book of Revelation opens up to us what goes on in heaven, there is singing everywhere. God does a thing and the elders seated around the throne sing. Jesus does a thing and the cherubim and the angels sing. And Jesus roars like a lion and the saints sing. If Revelation is a play, then it's a musical. Every few verses, someone is breaking out in song. And if that's how things go on, heaven, go on in heaven, then it certainly pleases God for worship to go that way in, in earth. So, so, so worship, when we gather for worship, our, our ascent in worship is one that, that goes along with singing. We ascend into the heavenlies in worship to assemble by the Spirit before the throne of God. And as we go before the throne of God, we go there singing. And we sing the whole time we are up there. And we sing around the table. And then we come back down singing. And then one day the whole earth will sing. We're just the first fruits. We're just the appetizer. We're, the, we're getting it started. But one day the whole earth will sing. The spirit leads humanity in song. And to be human is to be a singer. Now in Revelation 14, we get more triumphant singing as we wrap up this middle section before we get to the final series of plagues leading up to the last days of Jerusalem. To quickly remember where we are in the book, Jesus has called John up into the heavenlies to witness this heavenly worship service. Jesus ascends to take a book. The book is the is the book containing the covenant curses against apostate Israel. Israel has broken the covenant, and now this book contains the curses that fall on a covenant-breaking nation. This, co this, this book has seven seals, and as one by one those seals are broken, preliminary judgments, warning judgments fall on the land of Israel. Then the book is opened up, and seven angels trumpet out the contents of the book that Jesus has opened. And then there toward the end, John himself is given a book to eat. He's given this book to consume. And then John trumpets out what he sees. He sees heavenly visions. Uh, he sees a woman with a child. He sees a dragon. The woman uh, bears a, a son who ascends into heaven. And from heaven, the son makes war on the dragon and engages in conflict with the dragon kicks the dragon out of heaven. The dragon, of course, being our enemy, Satan, uh, hits the land, he hits the earth, and he summons a horrible beast from the sea 
who we saw as the Roman Empire. And then he summons a beast from the land who is apostate Israel. The land beast and the sea beast conspire together to provoke idolatrous worship among the people of the land. They arrange society in such a way that you can't go to the temple, you can't be part of the life of the people apart from identifying with the beast and taking on the name of the beast and of the dragon. Well, in, as we draw near to the end of this vision, all of these beasts have had their day. They've played in the sea, they've played on the land, and now we have a new beast appearing on a mountain. At the top of a mountain, a lamb appears at the start of chapter 14. Now, Psalm 2 says that the heathen nations rage, the kings and rulers conspire together against Yahweh and against his anointed who is his anointed? Well, that's Christ. Christ means anointed one. The kings and rulers engage against the Lord and against his anointed. And, and then how, how God responds to that is, yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And that's precisely what we've seen for the last couple of chapters. The powers and the rulers of the earth, Caesar and Herod and the high priest have all conspired together against the church and against the anointed. And now uh, we look up to the hills and we see from whence comes our help. There on the top of Mount Zion, which God says in Psalm 2, upon Mount Zion, I have set my king. Here on the top of Mount Zion is the lamb. So in chapter 14, we read, then I looked and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion. When you witness the savagery and the mayhem and the, and, and the brutality of the sea beast and the land beast, you look around and wonder and think, who's going to stop this? Who's going to stand up to this? Who can survive this? Who is going to put an end to all of this, all of this mayhem? Uh, the beasts look invincible from a human perspective. But then our eyes look up to the hills and we see the lamb lifted up over all of this. And we say, oh yes, the king of kings, the ruler of all the earth is installed on his holy mountain. It's interesting that he's on Mount Zion. Mount Zion is one of the hills it's one of the mountains of Jerusalem. It's mentioned often throughout the scriptures and often Jerusalem is synonymous with Zion and Zion is synonymous with, with Jerusalem. But Zion is not the, 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 the mountain that the temple was on. Second Chronicles 3 says the temple was built on Mount Moriah. And if you know Mount Moriah, you know that's where Abraham took Isaac to sacrifice him when God called Abraham to sacrifice his son. And in the last moment, God provided for himself a sacrifice. He provided a ram caught in the thicket so that Isaac didn't have to be sacrificed. The ram was his substitute. Of course, Jesus comes as a lamb or a ram. A ram is just a male sheep. Jesus comes as a ram whose head was caught in a thicket, whose, whose head bore a crown of thorns and who was offered as a sacrifice for Israel, but they rejected him. They said, I don't want that ram. I don't want him. I want to be sacrificed. Well, they're going to get what they want. They're going to get what's coming to them. Well, that's, that's, all, that's the story around Mount Moriah, and that's what the temple was supposed to be, uh, this, this substitutionary uh, 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 worship that, that points them to Jesus, that points them to the ram who's coming to take their place. 
Well, that's Mount Moriah. Mount Zion is something different. Mount Zion, where this lamb stands, Mount Zion was originally the fortress mountain that David captured when he came up to Jerusalem and he defeated the Jebusites to take the city of Jerusalem. Zion was where their castle was. And Zion means castle or fortress. So now Jesus, who is head of the church, the state, and the family, he now takes up his position of authority against the apostate family of Israel, against the apostate church, the temple, and against the apostate kingdom of Herod. And from this fortress position of rule and authority over all, the lamb now stands on this castle mountain, this fortress mountain, and with this comes a lot of warfare imagery. He's coming now to put down the rebellion of these beasts and of the dragon. So this, at the top of Mount Zion, is a military installation. This is a war camp. And that becomes obvious when you see that the lamb is not alone. He has an army with him in verse one. And with him, 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. We met this 144,000 back in chapter seven when they were sealed. And we observed at that time that these are the first fruits of faithful Israel. These are the faithful Israelites who made the transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. There are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, totaling 144,000, and they're the link between the Old World and the New World. This is the Pentecost church. This is the first fruits church out of Israel. And in chapter 7, we also saw gathered around this 144,000, we saw a great multitude of believers from every nation, of every tribe, and every people and tongue, a crowd that no one could number gathered around them. Well, that's, that's us. That's the rest of the church that are gathered around the 144,000. But this, this group is the faithful remnant of Israel as opposed to apostate Israel that we've been looking at. Here in this vision, remember Revelation is spoken in the language of symbol, and here are 144,000 men. Now, of course, there were women among that first generation of Jewish believers. There were women among them who accepted Christ as their Messiah. But Revelation, again, is a symbolic book. It's written in symbol. And what's important now is that we see them as an army. And, and 144,000 could be an exact number of, of, of first converts from Israel to, to Christ. It's not impossible for them to have had that many converts to Christ out of old Israel, but it's also a symbolic number. Whenever the fighting men of Israel mustered for battle, they mustered, they were called in their thousands. So now we have 12 thousands, 12 companies from each of the 12 tribes. We have a complete army, a perfect army, encamped in formation around the true tabernacle, Jesus the Lamb. They're marked on their forehead, we read. They're sealed by God. And so earlier we read in the last chapter, those who are not marked with the beast are shut out of the transactions, the, the liturgical transactions of the life of Israel. But these are marked by the sign of God. They have no problem buying and selling in the marketplace of the lamb. He gives them water. He gives them bread. He gives them wine. He gives them oil. He gives them white garments and gold and the eye salve that he offered the Laodicean church. He says, come buy these things from me. Well, they trade freely in the transactions of the new covenant, getting all of these blessings free from the lamb because they have 
his mark on their forehead. The land beast has his army of minions marked, but that's just a parody. This is the true mark, and this is the true army. Verse two, and I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder, and I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. The voice of God comes crashing in like thunder, and as we've seen so many times, that's the cue for the orchestra, the, the stringed instruments to begin, and for the choir to start singing. Music comes from the war camp. When Israel was faithful, she worshiped her way to victory. The faithful army of Israel blew their trumpets and the walls of the city came down. They put worshipers and musicians at the vanguard of their infantry and their enemies destroyed themselves when they heard the singing and the rejoicing of God's people. Song is preparation for battle, but it's also a form of battle itself. Uh, when we sing, it's a way of celebrating the Lord's victory even before the victory is won. We get a head start because we know that when the lamb shows up, it's over. It's done. He is going to be victorious. So we start, we start singing. And, and, and when the battle's over and the horse and rider is thrown into the sea, you sing and dance some more like Miriam did. Singing is turning your body into a musical instrument. And submitting yourself to musical worship is training your body to be used as an instrument of righteousness. We do that in worship here so that you can go out and do it all the time. You learn how to use your body as an instrument of righteousness, as an, interest, an instrument of the Holy Spirit in worship so that you can go out into the world and be an instrument of righteousness the rest of the week. And that's also why we sing generally sing militant songs so that you can go out and go to war. And all of this singing, all of this music now comes from the war camp. And there's a song that they sing that no one knows except those who are in the camp. Oh, there's a new liturgy. There's a new worship, uh, a new way of worship on the other side of the resurrection. And they're going to teach it to the rest of us. But for now, they know it. The Bible is front-loaded with all of this information about how to worship God. How, how is God pleased for us to approach him in worship? Uh, and then we get to the new covenant. We don't scrap everything that God says about worship. We don't act like, well, God didn't say anything about worship in the new covenant. God didn't say anything about what pleases him in worship. No, we, he did. We just have to learn what he said in the old covenant and then make adjustments in Christ, like instead of bringing an animal sacrifice, we now present our bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is our reasonable liturgy, our reasonable service. It's the same word there. It's our reasonable worship. We present our bodies as living sacrifices. Well, this army knows this new song. They know this new way of worship. They're the first fruits church. They're going to lead us in worship and help us transition from the old covenant to the new. Verse four, these are the ones who are not defiled with women for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men being first fruits to God and to the lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit for they are without fault before the throne of God. Well, it says they're virgins and they're not defiled with women. This doesn't mean that women are evil. 
This doesn't mean that marriage is akin to defilement. This doesn't mean that women cause defilement. In fact, Hebrews 13 says marriage is honorable and the bed is undefiled. It's expressly undefiled. But these men have not defiled themselves because they're young men and they're not married. And so this means that they haven't committed fornication like the army of the beast, nor have they made themselves unclean. Uh, For context, remember when Uriah the Hittite came home from the battle and David was trying to manipulate him into going home to his wife, uh, to Uriah's wife, and faithful Uriah didn't. Faithful Uriah refused because Israel was at war and Uriah knew that to go home and make love to his wife would make him ceremonially unclean. Now, ceremonial uncleanness does not equate to sinfulness. Ceremonial uncleanness just means that you can't go up to the tabernacle to worship or to celebrate feast days until you have been ritualistically clean, ritually cleansed, baptized, washed. Uh, the purity laws all have to do with the presence of the curse in our bodies. And our deliverance from the curse comes not from within ourselves. Deliverance from the curse comes from God's sanctuary and from his sacraments, from the cleansing and the purification that comes from God. And so throughout the old covenant, things that issue from your body are things that make you unclean. It reminds you of the uncleanness that is within you. You have nothing within yourself to save yourself. All you're good at producing is death and corruption. Out of you comes stuff that stinks. You can't save yourself. And there are lots of things around procreation that make you unclean, which which call us back to the curse that in, in childbearing, Eve would have sorrow. Again, you are not going to save yourself. You're not going to save your people through natural generation. You need supernatural regeneration. You need sacramental covenantal regeneration. Uh, So you're not going to get there on your own or by yourself or with your wife. You're not going to save your people through this. So under the old covenant, uh, procreation made you unclean temporarily, and so did childbirth. Childbirth made you, made you unclean temporarily, but there was a cleansing, there was a way uh, to get clean, and, and in most circumstances, you, you do the purification, you do the thing, and, and then you can worship the next day. You can come back the next day. Now, all of this is relevant because when Israel was camped as an army The war camp was another holy zone, similar to the temple. When Israel was camped as an army, Yahweh was with his people as they went out to battle. And the war camp was a place that couldn't be defiled with things that make you ceremonially unclean. Let me just read you a part of Deuteronomy. Back in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 23, listen to this. When the army goes out against your enemies, then keep yourself from every wicked thing. If there is any man among you who becomes unclean by some occurrence in the night, then he shall go outside the camp. He shall not come inside the camp. But it shall be when evening comes that he shall wash with water. And when the sun sets, he may come into the camp. Also, you shall have a place outside the camp where you may go out and you shall have an implement among your equipment. And when you sit down outside, you shall dig with it and turn and cover your refuse. For Yahweh your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and give your enemies over to you that your camp may be holy, that he may see no unclean thing among you and turn away from you. 
So in simple terms, army of Israel, do your business outside the camp. You know, don't turn the camp of God into a toilet, basically, right? Do your business outside the camp and dig a hole and cover it up. That's what you do. Why? Because Yahweh walks in the midst of you. This place is holy. You, you wouldn't use uh, the temple as a potty. So don't use the war camp because this is a holy zone. Yahweh walks in the midst of you. Now, all of these old covenant ceremonial ordinances, um, these, these are all things that have been transformed in Christ. Again, the new covenant clarifies that marriage does not defile. The marriage bed does not defile. There's nothing shameful. There's nothing corrupt there. However, fornication does defile. Fornication and idolatry are often synonymous with each other. And that's why this army is described as pure and undefiled because they're contrasted in every way with the army of the beast. They are not idolaters. They are not fornicators. They haven't laid down with harlot Babylon, with harlot Jerusalem that we're going to read about in a few chapters. These are the ceremonially clean army of, of the lamb. They have been washed with pure water. They have the name of the father on their heads and they are arrayed like an army with the lamb on the fortress mountain. They have refused the mark of the beast. They have not worshiped the image of the beast. They haven't fooled around with harlot Babylon. They have refused to, to join in the idolatry of the sea beast. And we also read in their mouth is no deceit. The dragon is a liar. He's the father of lies. He has flooded the land with lies and the people of the land have drank up all of the lies. But later we'll read that liars are outside of the heavenly city for eternity. But these are blameless. These are without fault. If you bring accusations against them, none will stick. These are the pure ones. Now, in response to the harps and the songs of the army, three angels now soar through the skies, making loud proclamations, heralding what's coming next. Verse six, that I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell in the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. The first angel is a gospel angel. He's preaching the good news to everyone. And he says, fear God, give glory to him, worship him. We're getting down to the wire. The hour of judgment has come and the Lord is the one who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. Well, in the last few chapters, we've seen the dragon kicked out of heaven. We've seen him defile the earth. We've seen him defile the land. He's called a beast out of the sea and he's poisoned the springs of waters. And everywhere he goes, the dragon commits mayhem. He creates chaos. But this angel reminds us that the one who's created heaven and earth, land and springs of water, that the one who's created the, the sea and all that's in it, has created all these realms, is now coming to restore them. That's what this angel proclaims. Then comes the second angel, verse 8. And another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, the great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Babylon is another name for Jerusalem in the book of Revelation, and the fall of the city is now imminent because that city made the nations drink her wine. Now, in, 
In chapter 17 of Revelation, we see Jerusalem is a harlot whose wine is the blood of the martyrs. And later in the same chapter, we see that the the saints are grapes ripe for the harvest. See, God instituted Jerusalem as as Lady Wisdom. He established the city as Lady Wisdom. She was to invite the nations to come eat her food, come drink her wine, come live in the way of understanding. But she's gone after other gods. So her food is not good bread. Her food is the heads of the prophets. Remember how Herod served John the Baptist's head on a platter. Her wine is the blood of the martyrs. And she doesn't lead the world into wisdom, but she seduces the world into folly, into fornication, into idolatry. So her doom is sure. And that's what the second angel proclaims. And the final angel cries out a warning, verse 9. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. If you drink the wine of harlot Jerusalem, you're also going to get the goblet of wrath that God has poured out in full strength. You see, Jesus drank the cup of wrath. Jesus already drank it. He drank it for you, but somebody has to drink it. And if you don't let Jesus drink it for you, then you're going to have to drink it. You're going to have to drink the full cup. You're going to get all of it. If you enter into the environment of beastly worship, if you take the mark and the identity of the beast, if you love what the beast loves, you're going to receive the full cup, the full measure of God's holy justice. And don't miss that this eternal torment goes on forever and ever in the presence of God and his holy angels, or the presence of the, of the lamb, doesn't it say? Uh, in, in the presence of the lamb and his holy angels. Psalm 139 says, there's nowhere you can go that God isn't. If I ascend into the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you're there. So even those who are judged forever are in God's presence forever. Everyone gets the presence of God forever. But there are those of us who enjoy our Father's presence and we think it's a real delight. We think it's the best thing ever to be in the light of the face of our Father. But there are those who hate him and they hate his presence and it's the worst thing imaginable. But guess what? That's what they're gonna get forever and ever. This happens in the presence of the Lamb and his angels. You gotta put up with Jesus forever, whether you like it or not. Verse 12, Uh, then here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, Yes, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Hebrews 11 says that the old covenant saints died without receiving the promises, but that God has provided something better for us. Where did the old covenant saints go when they died? You know, there's no sacrifice for them. Jesus hadn't died yet. He hadn't provided the perfect sacrifice that allows them to go into the presence of the Father. So where did old covenant saints go when they died? 
Well, Jesus tells us a parable, doesn't he? He tells us the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And in that parable, we see Lazarus not resting in the presence of God, but Lazarus is resting with Abraham. And across the great gulf, he can see the rich man. Um, It isn't until Jesus makes the sacrifice that provides a way of entry into the Father's presence that Jesus goes down into Hades. What was Jesus doing between Good Friday and Easter morning? What was he doing there? Well, he goes down into Hades. He preaches the gospel to the spirits in prison, and then he ascends to the Father, leading captivity captive, as Paul tells us in Ephesians. He takes the captives with him up into the presence of the Father. And now, because of the work of Jesus, now on this side of the resurrection, everyone who dies goes into the presence of God. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now we get this assurance here that this army, as they go to war, they're going to be casualties. They're going to be martyrs. And yet the father says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. That if you're part of this army, and you're a casualty in this army, in this fight against the beast and against the dragon, and you pass from this life, you are blessed in the Lord. You are going to go to his presence. This army is going to populate heaven. And then the Holy Spirit echoes. The Holy Spirit says, they will rest from their labors and their works will follow them. Their works are not in vain. Their works will be rewarded, which is important to hear because the next thing that happens is the harvest of these saints. And now I'm going to read the rest of this chapter. Verse 14. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and on the cloud sat one like the son of man having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap for the time has come for you to reap for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he sat on the cloud and thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe." So the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. So far in this book, we have seen several references to the period of intense persecution and And history bears out that the closer you get to AD 70, the more intense the hostility grows against the church. From Nero, from apostate Israel, from the synagogue, they persecute the church. This section now is focused primarily on the persecution of faithful Israel, that persecution that wiped out the first generation of believing Jews. You know, all of the apostles were martyred. Every every one of the apostles were martyred. Those members of Israel that joined themselves to Jesus, they did so at a great cost. Because when they committed their lives to Jesus, they they became enemies of both Rome and Israel. And all of these, they all had their goods plundered. They were tried. They were tortured. They were killed. They followed Jesus through the fires of sacrifice and death. They share in the sufferings of Christ. Here, the martyr blood flows throughout the land for 1,600 furlongs, which is about 200 miles. 
That's about the, the length of Palestine from north to south. That's about the length of the Jordan River. The whole land is wet with the blood of the martyrs. Just as Abel's blood cried out for justice from the ground, cried out for vengeance against his older brother, so does the younger brother church cry out for justice against the older brother of old covenant unfaithful apostate Israel. This is all very tragic from our perspective, but Revelation gives us important additional perspective. Their lives, the lives of these martyrs, are not harvested by Rome. They're not harvested by Herod. They're not harvested by the high priest. They're harvested by the one who sits in the heavens. Their death is not an accident. It's not a coincidence. Their, their death isn't pointless. Their lives aren't wasted. They are harvested by the decree and the direction of heaven. They are harvested because their works are full and their fruit is ripe. And we read that over and over. They have completed their duties. They have fulfilled their tasks. They have finished their works. They have borne fruit and now there is something to harvest. And this is true of all the lives of all who belong to Jesus, all who have the name of Christ on their foreheads. When the Lord thrusts his sickle into the earth and when he harvests them, it's because their works are full. Their fruit is ripe and it's time to pick them. This is a great comfort to us because it's often difficult to understand why and when God picks the fruit that he does, why he takes his people when he takes them. Now, if someone lives to be 100 years old and their life is full of service and giving and they minister to many people and they build institutions and the word of God is always on their lips and they do great works in the name of Jesus and they're harvested at 100 or 101 years old, we say, oh yes, yeah, their works are full. Their fruit was ripe. And we rejoice when God picks their fruit and they go to be with the Lord. But here in Revelation 14, symbolically at least, we have an army of young men who aren't married. They're men in the prime of life who are harvested and we would question the timing. Why can't they be left to do more? Surely there's a world of missed potential and opportunity for them to be taken out now. But the Lord of Harvest says, no, 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 no. Listen, I'm happy. I'm very happy with what I see. And it's time to pick this fruit. It's time for the harvest. And the same truth is true whether we talk about little saints who go on to be with the Lord, whether we're talking about infants or children that we lose in the womb or, or young people or people right in the prime of life when that they're, they're at their most productive and we say, Lord, what you couldn't leave him around a little bit more. We loved him. We loved her. Why couldn't you keep her here? Uh, why, why couldn't you let her remain? Or, or, or missionaries and martyrs who die in the service of the Lord Jesus. There, there are stories of, of, of during the Roman persecution where, where soldiers were so moved by the faithfulness of the Christian martyrs as the Christians were being put to death, Roman soldiers fell on their knees and repented of their sins and confessed faith in Christ. They were converted and then they were just put in line, next in line to be executed for confessing the name of Jesus. And we said, well, they didn't get to live a normal Christian life. They didn't get to grow up faithful families but still, their death is not a waste. Their works were full, their fruit was ripe, and they were harvested. 
And this, this image brings us a great deal of comfort that the Lord of the harvest picks the fruit when it's ripe and when he's satisfied with the works, be it, be it a child we lose in the womb again, or be it someone who's 101 years old, uh, the Lord of the harvest picks the fruit when he is satisfied. And that's what he does here. Well, what do we learn? What do we learn from this army? That's encamped with the, with the lamb on Mount Zion. Three very short things, very quick. Uh, this is the first fruits church, but it stands as representative of the whole church throughout history. Well, what are the characteristics of these saints? They are undefiled. They follow the lamb wherever he goes, and they don't have the lies of Satan in their mouths. That's their characteristics. These are the markers of the faithful soldiers of the lamb. So if you are in the lamb's army, these things are going to be true of you as well. First, they are undefiled. They wear the helmet of salvation that says, holy to the Lord. They have his name on their forehead. So they don't wear the uniform of the beast. To, to be undefiled means that you don't commit spiritual adultery. You're not tempted by the harlotries of the world. The people who are committed to the present world order, the people of this generation who are not a part of the kingdom of God, they have certain affections they have certain doctrines that they believe in. They have certain values. But you, undefiled soldier of the Lamb, do not set your heart on what they have set their heart on. You do not chase after their goals. You do not share their affections. You do not pursue their pleasures. What makes you happy is very different from what makes them happy. You don't value what they value. And you certainly do not chase after their approval. This is such an incredible temptation for young men and for young women, especially because you want to be loved and you want to be accepted and you don't want to be shut out. You want approval and you want to be drawn in. And yet people fully committed to this world will never respect you so long as you love Jesus. You just might as well accept it right now. They will not accept you so long as you love Jesus. Accept that. And then, and, and so stop caring what they think about you. Stop pursuing their pleasure and seek to please only the one whose name is stamped on your forehead. That's the one you please. G James said, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Faithfulness to the lamb requires clear separation from the world and from this generation. So that's first. First, they're undefiled. Second, they follow the lamb, which is not easy because the lamb goes some places you may not want to go. Where the lamb goes, there's temptation and there's rejection and there's deprivation and there's suffering and there's conflict and there's a cross. And yet the faithful army of the lamb says, wherever he's going, I'm going. Where else am I going to go? Who else am I going to follow? I'm going to follow him. And then he goes through this. He goes through death and he goes through burial and we follow. And then he goes through resurrection and ascension and glorification and we follow him there too. He blazes the trail and we follow in his train. So we don't fear death. We don't fear shame. We don't fear loss because he's already been there and he's waiting for us on the other side. He's gone ahead of us and now he calls us to follow him. So that's the second thing. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They're undefiled. They follow the lamb and they don't have the lies of Satan in their mouths. They haven't bought the lies of the dragon and they don't repeat the lies of the dragon. They don't confuse lies with the gospel. What do they have on their tongue? 
Well, they have this new song, don't they? They have, they have discipline in singing God's word, and that's an antidote to the lies of the devil. Do you ever find yourself singing psalms throughout the week whenever you're, you know, puttering around or doing things and you have, the, you have the words of God on your lips? That's why we sing the psalms. I'm doing something and I'll sing, God shall arise and by his might put all his enemies to flight. Or I'll sing, you know, oh my soul, why are you grieving? Why disquieted in me? And you sing these things, you sing to yourself and you sing God's word as you go. That's what you do. You have God's words on your lips, not the lies of the devil. Singing in worship trains us, it disciplines us to always respond to God's mighty acts with joy and faith. We learn in worship how to respond when God does something. So God does something. He calls us to worship and we respond with singing. He forgives our sins and we sing some more. He speaks to us and we sing and we sing his words back to him. We sing as we give, he gives us bread and we sing, he gives us wine and we sing, and then he blesses us and we sing our way out the door. In song, we are giving him the sacrifice of praise, which is at the very least a sacrifice of our life's breath. We are giving him our life. We are giving him our breath in preparation for the day that we might be called upon to give him our blood. If you don't give him your breath, you're never going to give him your blood. You're never going to give him any more than that. So in giving him our breath, we say, you know what? I'm yours completely. I belong to you fully, and I'm willing to give everything for you. The history books are full of martyrs who sang their way to the dungeon, who sang their way to the stake, who sang their way to the cross. Jesus sings psalms on the cross. Read, what are the sayings of Jesus? Psalm 22, Psalm 42, Psalm 31. That's what Jesus says from the cross. So he sings from the cross. The lamb stands on Mount Zion and sings, and so does his army. So that when he thrusts his sickle into the earth and when he reaps his harvest, what do we do? We sing. That's what we're trained to do in worship. He does a thing, we sing. So we go out on Monday and he does a thing and we say, what do we do? Well, we sing. And then he does something on Wednesday afternoon. And we say, oh yeah, I know what to do. I sing. I always respond to him with gratitude and thanksgiving. And so now he sends his, his sickle into the earth. He reaps his harvest and we respond with singing. And when he picks our fruit, we continue singing. We don't have fear. We don't have shame. We respond with worship and praise and thanksgiving all of our days because we are his undefiled, faithful following, devil lies despising army choir who cheers him on as he defeats the beasts and the dragon. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for these visions of, of the way that you work in the world and these peaks behind the curtain into the way things run in heaven. And so we pray that you would strengthen your people with these visions, that you would give us uh, confidence in your lamb who has come to conquer and that he has blessed us with the opportunity to stand in his army and fight with him. So we ask you to give us grace, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.